as a woman, there's this expectation you procreate, you know, mm-hmm. it's easy peasy. <laughs> and so there's something about it that makes you feel like you're not living up to mm-hmm. what you're supposed to do, this thing. It's very natural. It's very easy. Why, why isn't it working for you? Hi there. Welcome to This Is My Family, a podcast about building a life with the people you love. I'm your host, Tyler Green, and I'm so glad that you're here. On today's show, I talk to one of my favorite podcast personalities of all time, Shireen Marisol Miraji. She hosts NPR's Code Switch, and today we're talking about what it's like to grow up in a mixed identity household, in her case, Iranian and Puerto Rican. And later in the interview, she opens up about her struggles to have children of her own. For those who haven't heard our podcast before, welcome. A little bit about me and why we're here. I am a gay man living in California. My husband is from China, and we're raising a baby. I started this podcast as a celebration and exploration of the beautifully messy ways we make our families and the ways our families make us. I first met our guest, Shireen, when I produced a live taping of her show, Code Switch. It was a sold-out show for over 1,000 of her fans on a cold Friday night in Chicago. She's created a brilliant show that tells stories about race, identity, and belonging. Her last names, Marisol and Miraji, highlight her mixed-race upbringing. The daughter of a Puerto Rican mother and an Iranian father, Shireen has always had to navigate between multiple cultures. A few weeks ago, Shireen posted an image on Instagram from a doctor's office. The caption read, To all the women out there battling infertility, I see you. And I know personally how much this sucks. And to all of you with painful endometriosis and fibroids, I see you too. You're holding it down like nothing is wrong, and you're suffering. We so often talk about the happy and beautiful parts of having children, but it's not often that we make space to learn about the difficult moments. I asked Shireen if she would be game to talk about her fertility journey, and I'm so grateful that she said yes. Before we get to that, though, I did have a lot of questions for her about how she navigated her multiple identities growing up. I myself was born in the Midwest, good old U.S. of A. My husband was born and raised in China, as I said before, and our baby is a product of IVF and surrogacy with my sister's egg and my husband's sperm. So we are raising a mixed-race baby. I started by asking Shireen to tell me more about her parents and what it was like growing up. So my mom is Puerto Rican, and she grew up both in Puerto Rico and the United States going back and forth a lot because my grandfather was in the military, like a lot of Puerto Ricans. And she came to the United States. She was in Puerto Rico at the University of Puerto Rico. She was in her uh, early 20s. I think she was about 20 when my grandfather got stationed in Sacramento on McClellan Air Force Base. And so she decided and my aunt decided to leave Puerto Rico where they were going to university and come so that they could live closer to their four brothers, four younger brothers and my grandparents in Sacramento. And that's really where my family stayed. And so my mom ended up going to UC Davis She was an undergrad at UC Davis, and that's where she met my father. My father was in graduate school. He was studying agriculture, 
and studying on a visa. And they met at the International Student Center. (laughs) My mom would spend a lot of time at the International Student Center. My dad did too. From what I understand, my dad's visa expired and he was going to have to go back to Iran. They had been dating for a little while and they decided to get married. So they did. My dad became a citizen because my mom was a citizen because Puerto Ricans are citizens. And um, not not long after my mom got pregnant with me. And at that time, my parents were living in Fresno, California. My dad was working on a dairy farm. My mom wasn't working at all. My dad was getting paid $2 an hour. It was really difficult for them to make ends meet, pay for their apartment. So they decided to move back in with my grandparents, my Puerto Rican grandparents. And they lived with my Puerto Rican grandparents for a while. So my grandmother always says that she's my real mom <laughs> <laughs> um, because she was really helping my mom take care of me. And when my parents ended up getting their own home in Sacramento, a few uh, years later, my grandmother was like through a fit, I guess, that my mom was taking her daughter <laughs> away from her. So so all that to say, I have like an incredibly close relationship with my grandparents who are Puerto Rican, who speak Spanish. You know, I did Spanish was the first language that I heard all around me. I just grew up speaking back to them in English, but they were much more comfortable speaking Spanish. So Spanish was everywhere. That was a part of my life. My grandparents were like my parents. They cooked dinner for us every night. My grandmother cooked dinner for us, and we would go there for dinner. Mm. Like, this is how I grew up. You know, Mm. I was surrounded by my Puerto Rican family. And so when it came to things like uh, food and holiday traditions, uh, Mm -hmm. which side of the family ended up winning out on things like that? Oh, my Puerto Rican side won out all the time, every time, for, for a lot of reasons, my uh, aunts and uncles and my cousins and my grandparents were in Sacramento, too. My grandfather was in the military, so he was stationed at McClellan Air Force Base. He was in the Air Force. And so everybody kind of followed him from Puerto Rico to Sacramento. Yeah. So I had a lot of Puerto Rican family surrounding me, really loving, very open. Uh, we did Puerto Rican traditional things. And, you know, we... Christmas Eve was a really big deal, and we had huge parties all the time, and I went to Catholic school. <laughs> like, very, I, I just grew up surrounded by Latinidad. So how does your dad fit into this very Puerto Rican picture you were growing up in? My dad, like I said, is from Iran. He came out here to study. He ended up marrying a woman who was not from his culture, a different religion. My father is Muslim, Shia Muslim, and his family's very, very, very religious. Um, in fact, my great-grandfather was an Ayatollah from Gom, so like the the religious yeah. like center of Iran. And my father's family disowned him when he married my mother. They were very upset. They had a, another plan for him, another woman uh, more suitable for him to marry who was the same religious background and somebody that, you know, the family approved of and picked. And my mom is Catholic. She's Puerto Rican. They had never met her. This this was just not their plan for him. Mm. <laughs> so um, he, he distanced himself from them and they distanced themselves from him. And I really had absolutely no connection with my Iranian side of the family growing up. At all. So none of those traditions. And my dad, I think he was so bitter and resentful about what what went down that he did not speak Farsi in the home. He did not talk about um, 
growing up any of his traditions he he really was a stranger to me in in that respect hmm. my entire life how did you bond with your dad when you were younger i was a real sporty kid and he loves soccer and i was really good at it and so we bonded over soccer um and we both love the outdoors my mom is my mom really likes to be inside cooking and reading and, and, and those types of things. And my dad loves to be outside in nature. Mm. He's obsessed with nature. <laughs> and so we would go on hikes and we would go camping. And I loved camping and my brother didn't. And so it was like my dad and I, this was the thing that we did together. And he taught me about the trees in the forest and, you know, which one's a Douglas fir, which one's a redwood, all of those things. Um, <laughs> God. Don't make me, every time I talk about my so, dad, I cry. Um, so, it, yeah. So we bonded over those types of things. It mm-hmm. wasn't necessarily over culture, um, mm-hmm. but it was cultural, you know, because Iranians, like, they have this really deep connection mm-hmm. to the outdoors and all of those things. And so I think he was trying to share his culture in the way that he could with yeah. me. So, yeah, yeah, that's how we bonded. I mean, you still had his last name, right? But the absence of any traditions or any, really anything, right? And Shireen. So I I guess I just have a curiosity around, like, how that played out in you, but also in him. Well, for me, it was it was really confusing to be surrounded by a family of Puerto Ricans where Spanish was their first language and pronouncing my name was really difficult. (laughs) (laughs) So it was, you know, my grandmother called me Chiringa and and Chiring, you know, and um, (laughs) I was always like, and my middle name is Marisol. And so I was always like, oh, I can can we just can why couldn't I have been Marisol? Like it would have made my <laughs> life so name. much easier. <laughs> right? And Shireen is a beautiful name too, yeah. but like nobody could appreciate it. It means sweet and farsi, you know, mm-hmm. all of these things that I know my parents wanted to give some sort of gift of my father's um ancestry and heritage to me. And so they were like, Yes, Shireen, it makes sense and, and it makes sense for a few reasons. It makes sense because it's easy for Americans to pronounce. Much easier than Marisol. My mom didn't want me to be called Marisol, like aerosol. She just couldn't (laughs) deal with that. So, you know, they gave me Shireen, but then it was also connected to my heritage. And so I think that they were doing something really beautiful by giving me that name. But then there wasn't much follow through in terms of raising me in a household that had Iranian traditions or that was at all grounded or steeped in anything Persian. And for me, that was really complicated and, um, and, and, and hard. And it got harder to explain when kids were really starting to understand differences, starting to ask questions and not really understanding, well, wait, so your dad doesn't speak Spanish, so he's not Latino. Like, well, what is he? And what is this language? And do you speak it? And, all of these questions started coming up for me, which just made me honestly, and this is around junior high when it really, really started, honestly made me want to distance myself from that part of who I was, you know, basically saying, uh, you pronounce my last name Merahi. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm basically Mexican. You don't understand what a Puerto Rican is because I grew up in California. 
I'm basically Mexican, same difference, <laughs> you know, kind of doing that whole thing mm. to just make it easier so that I didn't have to answer a million questions all the time about who are you? What are you? Where you come from? You know, this is so weird. You're not like any of us, uh, that kind of thing. So for my dad, you know, I think it was hard for my dad. Now that I look back, I think he probably did feel a little bit isolated and, and alienated. And because, first of all, he's a very, um, and I don't think this is cultural, but my dad is just a very private person. He's a very quiet, sort of introspective person. And my Puerto Rican side, all of them are boisterous and loud. And I don't mean to make stereotypes here, mm. um, but they're, they're those kinds of people and they love a party. And my dad just didn't have that, that same kind of personality that meshed with what was going on in my Puerto Rican family. So I think it would have been nice for him to have a connection to an identity that he grew up with and a, a place of comfort. And he did not have that. I think his place of comfort was our, our nuclear family, the four of us, my brother, who, by the way, they named Mark Anthony, <laughs> which is like so Puerto Rican, Marco Antonio. Um, and, you know, my mom and me, I think that was his comfort zone. Um, and then when it came to a, the broader link to my Puerto Rican family, I think, uh, you know, yeah. he, he always I could tell he was always on the margins, like getting back to Christmas. He was kind of shy. He was in the corner. He doesn't really drink. That was never a part of his upbringing. Um, mm. When we would open presents during Christmas, it was always he, he always just seemed a little bit awkward with with the whole thing. So, yeah, I think it was hard for my dad. And, you know, my dad has Parkinson's now and he's not doing well at all. And I haven't I really want to have deeper conversations with him about how he feels about that, because I think that he does regret not. Um, yeah. I'm so sorry. It's OK. I think he does regret not sharing his his culture with us. And I think that he sees how how it's really left us wanting and left a hole in my brother and I, yeah. um, not really understanding who we are, and having to piece it together. And I think it. I think he's realizing now because his life is coming to an end. I think he's realizing now that it wasn't good for him. To, it wasn't good for him either to keep that from us. Yeah. So I don't even know if that answers your question. It's like no, so it complicated. Yeah, it <laughs> does. I mean, something that I was, thank you for sharing that. And I think um, I'm, I'm thinking a question that I was thinking of while you were talking is that, you know, it's not, it's not the same situation at all, but my dad is, has chronic lymphoma leukemia and is also at the end of his life. And, and uh, you just start, you just start looking at things in a much more crystallized and like immediate way. Right. And like yeah. these conversations that we, that we really need to have for, for ourselves and for them, um, obviously don't become any easier, but they become like <laughs> urgent, much more urgent. Yeah. As you're talking, I'm thinking about like my husband's mom is supposed to be here, but 
because of the pandemic and racism, she's still in China. <laughs> and yeah. um, she made all this Chinese food for us when she was here. She took care of Sam for the first six months of his birth. Now I'm finding myself getting emotional. And now she's stuck there and she sees him every day on FaceTime. And it's beautiful, but she's not here. And so then I've taken to like learning how to cook Chinese food and then mm. started taking Mandarin classes. Like every Monday, I'm so fucking tired by the time I get to Mandarin <laughs> class that I'm right. like, ni hao, that's all I can do. And and still, um, and so the question I have for you is, as you're thinking about and, and building your own family and having your own kids, how are you going to approach some of these things, um, language, traditions, and, and helping them understand the story that we just outlined? My husband and I are trying to have kids, and we've talked about this. It's really important to make sure that our kids are going to school where it's either you know, bilingual education or they're going to school after school to learn Farsi, to learn Spanish, that we make sure that that's a priority for them and that we learn right alongside of them. Yeah. And they're probably going to surpass us. <laughs> yeah. No, Sam, Sam already fast. speaks more Spanish than I do. <laughs> Take care is Spanish speaking only. So I'm like, I know he's saying words. I just don't know what they are <laughs> Yeah, right now. And, just, and we're just going to have to be okay with that. But yeah. what I want to do is be able to provide my children with something that – I didn't have and I and and felt like a real loss for me. So I have an opportunity to give that to my kids. And I also don't blame my parents at all for not doing that. It, I'm sure it was really difficult where English is the common language in the home and uh, they were working all the time and they were young parents trying to raise two kids in a country that wasn't their home country. Like there was a lot going on and they thought that the best thing for us would be to make sure that we were really good students and we got our English down perfect and you know, we went to college, like those were things that they were really focused on and, and they weren't as focused on passing down their own cultures or traditions or, or language. Right. Right. And, and I don't blame them for that. I get it. Still ahead, I talk with Shireen about her struggles to grow her own family through IVF. If you're enjoying this conversation, don't forget to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, follow on Spotify, or add us on any of the other great podcast apps out there. Stay with us. More Shireen up next. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. Furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters and this podcast. Shireen is building her own family now. She got married a few years ago. I asked her to tell me more about her husband. My husband's name is Nicolás Espíritu, and he is from California like me. He's from Northern California, San Jose. And we met playing capoeira. <laughs> Uh, I was, which is an Afro-Brazilian martial art. We met in Los Angeles doing that. And um, yeah, we just became friends. I was much better than him at Capoeira, so I didn't pay him that much mind at that time. But yeah, but he was a civil rights attorney and I work for NPR and we had a lot of things in common in terms of like the subject matter that we were interested in. And so, yeah, we were friends for years 
and years, like eight years. And then when we were both found ourselves single and in our late 30s, (laughs) he was like, hey, what do you think? And I was like, what? You're my friend. I don't know about this. Uh, But we started dating. And then the courtship was like very, very fast. We got married. And then we were older and we were like, oh, we want to have kids. Okay. (laughs) This might be more difficult at 38 and 39 years old. So yeah. And then we, uh, we, we embarked really fast on like trying to get pregnant and trying to make a family in that way. Yeah. And did you both always know that you, you wanted kids? I love kids. I just assumed I would have them. And my husband was in a a long relationship with someone who didn't want kids. And I think that solidified his uh, understanding of how much he did want them. I saw a photo you posted recently on Instagram where you you opened up about the struggles to have a baby and your fertility journey. And first of all, why did you decide to post that specifically? Uh, I think that I decided to post it because when Code Switch really started becoming popular, all these people started following me. All of a sudden, there was a couple thousand people following me. And I thought, this is an opportunity to be a little bit of an example, like a good example, and just put out there that not everything is hunky-dory. And by the way, <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm struggling with infertility while holding down a really hard job. And um, my personal infertility stems from the fact that I have endometriosis and I've, I have it very severely. I was um, diagnosed with it about a decade ago. I just wanted to like put that out there, like that... <sighs> I think it was maybe a little bit therapeutic for me, too. And people do talk about IVF. There's like a lot of groups. There's a lot of virtual groups. There's a lot of in-person groups. There are a lot of forums where people are talking about IVF. But I feel like when it comes to the public and how we're having these conversations in public Mm. in a broad way, it's not happening. So it was a little bit of an entree into saying, hey – I'm going through this too. And why do you think it is that it feels so sort of taboo to talk about infertility? There's just the fact that as a woman, there's this expectation you procreate, you know, Mm -hmm. it's easy peasy. (laughs) And so there's something about it that makes you feel like you're not living up to Mm -hmm. what you're supposed to do. This thing, it's very natural. It's very easy. Why Why isn't it working for you? There's that part of it. I think there's the part of it, too, that there's plenty of kids out there that need homes and who need to be adopted. And so why are you going through all of this hell and spending all of this money on something where just so that you can get pregnant with your own egg and sperm or what, whatever? I think there's like a conversation happening around that that I'm also having in my head. Like, is this... Why are we doing this? Why are we putting ourselves through this? And I don't know. I don't want to put myself out there to be criticized by people who don't understand my situation or what I'm going through. Yeah. So where um, where are you at right now in the, the process? So we started trying, and this, this is with, was without science, 
without Western medicine. We we were just trying before we got married in June of 2016 on our own and trying for months and months and nothing was happening. And so, and I knew I had endometriosis. I knew it might be difficult. So I thought, okay, well, maybe we should talk to a doctor and see what's going on. So I went to Kaiser around 2016 and I started the process then. And with Kaiser, they, they have you do in, intrauterine insemination first before they have you do IVF. And I wasn't covered for any of this. Mm. So an intrauterine insemination, IUI, is cheaper than IVF. So I was, you know, but it's still not cheap, Mm -hmm. (laughs) let Mm -hmm. me tell you. Mm -hmm. So I'm spending, uh, at that time, I was spending thousands of dollars out of pocket to do these IUIs, which weren't working. And they have you on Clomid, they have you on all kinds of hormones. And so we were doing that process. I was feeling like incredibly resentful. I'm also, we launched a podcast at the same time, Code Switch. Things were getting really stressful in my life. And I was just like, oh my God, I felt all kinds of pressure. Like I have to do this now. I'm getting old. Oh my gosh, I have this job. I'm super stressed, but I'm not supposed to be stressed because you can't be stressed if you're going to get pregnant. Like they tell you that all the time. Mm. You've got to be calm. You can't be stressed. (laughs) So, um, so anyway, I was doing all these IUIs. It was really expensive. It was really affecting our marriage. And I was just like, we need to stop. Like, I can't do this anymore. If we're going to stay married, I am like resent. I'm very resentful. I'm very angry. I feel so much pressure. I need to like put, put the pause button on this. And I did. I'm, and we were trying naturally. I was doing acupuncture. I was not drinking. I was, you know, trying to eat all of the right things, all of that stuff. And we did that for a while. And then NPR decided that they were going to, um, have health insurance that covered IVF for the first time. And that was kicking in in 2020. Mm. And so when that happened, I thought, well, that, that huge pressure and stress of, the money will be off our shoulders. And so maybe this is this is the right time to just go in hardcore IVF. Let's do this. We made that decision. <laughs> and then COVID happened. <laughs> so so that was like, we didn't know what was going on. We didn't know if the clinics were going to stay open. We didn't know if we should be going to the clinic and whether we were going to be exposing ourselves to all of these things. But finally, in May, when we realized, okay, this is what we need to do. We need to wear masks. We need to wash our hands. We need to stay far away from each other. When it was really clear that there were protocols around COVID, we we did the first round of IVF for real, for real. And that was in May. And I've just been on that journey hardcore since May. <laughs> yeah, so May. So not that long for the hardcore part of it. Most people actually, to your point earlier, don't know. And so part of why people act so stupid (laughs) is that they don't know. And so they make shit up and um, assume things. You know, I'm also curious about, you know, the physical and emotional toll it takes. And I think those two things are probably intertwined. um, Yeah. The process and and results, I guess. So in our case, it was like the sperm looks good enough for a man his age. The egg, your, your egg reserves look good enough for a woman your age. Yeah, you're good candidates for IVF. Let, let's see how this happens. We don't quite know how endometriosis and your endometriosis is going to play into this. We, we just don't have that information. So um, let's go hardcore IVF, pump you full of the drugs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then it comes to I'm 
putting hormones into myself three in the morning, two in the evening. Um, toward the end, I'm taking this human growth hormone, which is not FDA approved and not actually covered by my insurance mm. and, and very expensive. Yeah. So you're bloated, you're tired, you're like hormonal, you're up and down. And then, you know, you go to get retrieved and you're hoping, hoping that you have enough eggs to do something with because the odds are not great, right? Mm-hmm. Like, the, so, so you get 10 eggs. Well, maybe seven of those eggs fertilize. Well, then maybe two of them get to the stage that you want them to be, but really there's only one that's viable in the end. And for a woman my age, and they're saying that <clears throat> it takes like five rounds of IVF to get that one healthy egg that you can transfer. Wow. Uh, into your womb. And then you're like, well, is my womb in good enough shape mm-hmm. <laughs> to actually yeah. grow this baby? Mm-hmm. And that's that I haven't even gotten to that stage yet because we haven't yet gotten an egg that has been healthy enough um, in the, the last four rounds that we've done to be transferred. And so throughout the whole process, there's just like all of these ways that you can be super disappointed, you know? And so for, I guess they call them, is it four cycles or four... Is that right? Four cycles of IVF that you've gone through? So I guess these are cycles, but I haven't gone through the entire cycle. So I haven't had a transfer yet because I have yet to have a good enough embryo come out of of all of this to transfer into my uterus. Yeah. I I have a question. I want to acknowledge that it's possibly none of my fucking business, but I'm just going to ask it (laughs) and tell me it's none of my fucking business if it isn't. But is there, um, are there thresholds for you emotionally or actually not even emotionally, like literally where you're like, I'm not going to do this anymore. And and then if you're not going to do this anymore, is it, you know, are there other options? Is there, you know, um, other, um, other egg donors, other, you know, or adoption or whatever, um, options out there? Yeah, so I've been talking to Nico about this because we're still positive. We're still trying to be positive. We want we're going to do this a couple more times and see if we can get that that embryo, but he has seen what a toll it's taken on me and he's like it doesn't matter. Like we want to be parents and so let's yeah, let's talk about adoption. He, I have always been really open to adoption. He really wanted to have a, wanted to see me pregnant, wanted to have a baby. Like that was really important to him and have it be our baby and our genetics and all of that stuff. Yeah. But I think now that he's seen how difficult the process has been and what a toll it has taken on me, uh, physically, mentally, everything, we're now having a much more open conversation about alternatives adoption being one that's really high on the list um but we're we're like having little discussions about donor eggs should we do that um and then surrogacy has always been something that was on the table just because i had endometriosis and because i had fibroids and so if we do get this like beautiful healthy embryo Mm -hmm. (laughs) that makes it to the blastocyst stage we are very open to having a surrogate carry um, because it's just been such a journey to get that far. If we do get that far, yeah. that, gosh, I, I don't want to and, – and waste is such a weird word, but I wouldn't want to waste that embryo on like a subpar 
uterus, <laughs> which could be what, what, what we're looking at with my uterus. And my doctor, we haven't been focused on that yet because we've been really super hyper-focused on getting that embryo and getting that healthy embryo. Yeah. The next stage is like, is my uterus, can it handle this? Is, is it in good shape? And so, yeah, surrogacy has been a conversation that we've had and I think we're feeling pretty comfortable with. Yeah. And what have you learned um, about yourself and, and maybe your partnership with your husband by going through this journey so far? Um, this, I knew this was going to be hard, but this has been, especially the early stages of this, just coming to terms with how difficult things were going to be. It, it was harder than I imagined. And it's really, we, it tested us and it tested our relationship a lot. And what we've been able to do is have better communication. I didn't realize that we, we just didn't have great communication skills. And there was a lot of resentment that I was feeling and it was coming out in just really fiery anger and being incredibly accusatory, not using I statements, all of those things. I was in therapy trying to figure that out. My husband wasn't. And so he actually ended up doing some therapy, which really helped our communication so he could analyze his side of things, like where was he going wrong and how was he feeling? And he was very much feeling like I would say that I was going to do this and then I would back out. And, and he was feeling like, hey, you're not following through on something that we had decided together. And my, my feeling was you're not the one getting shots of hormones, mm -hmm. feeling hormonal, basically almost getting fired at work because you're being such a raging bitch <laughs> to everyone. I mean, that's not true. That's, that's, you know, I, I'm, I'm going a little bit overboard there, but like, seriously, <laughs> like I was worried that I was going to get fired from this career that I had worked so hard for. I couldn't do all of this stuff at the same time. I needed a break. And so every time I asked for a break, he was like, Hey, you know, we had a plan and you're going against the plan. And so he was resentful to me. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it, it just, we had to get to a place where we could communicate without blaming one another and without being really, really harsh to one another to like see where each other was coming from. And it's, it's really strengthened our relationship, I think. Is there anything else you want to talk about, um, you know, as it pertains to this journey specifically in, in building your family? The one thing that has really helped me is to develop relationships with my friends' kids. I know that for some women, it's really, really hard when other people get pregnant around them and when they're trying to get pregnant. In my case, it just gave me hope because, mm -hmm. first of all, a lot of my friends are the same age as I am and also were struggling with some infertility issues. And so when they were able to get pregnant and have their children, it just felt like, okay, there's 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 hope here. And also making sure that I'm a part of their life, their children's lives, not just their lives, but their children's lives. I have children around me and they feel very much like my family. And it's been so helpful 
And it's really brought me a lot of happiness to forge these relationships with my dear friends who have young children. It's been awesome and made me also realize that I can have a family in different ways and I can have children in in different ways and have children be a part of my life, even if they're not my own children in my own home. Mm -hmm. So that's been great. But any other um, advice like that? for people who are listening who are going through something similar? Be kind to yourself because this ain't easy. Mm-hmm. And not there are, there are not that many people in your life who are going to totally understand what's happening. So seek out people who do mm-hmm. and talk to them. Mm-hmm. So when you picture your family maybe five years from now or ten, um, I'm curious... What does it look like, and and maybe what are you doing on a Sunday afternoon together? Oh, so my therapist always says that she's like, you've got to really picture this, you know, get like to to help you get excited about it. There's a part of me that like feels scared to picture these things because I'm like, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, then I don't want to get really disappointed if it doesn't happen. But I would love in my mind, I see twin girls. <laughs> and I see my husband and I playing with them and our dog in the park with other children and just speaking to them in Spanish, which <laughs> I don't know if that'll happen because both of us are really still trying to learn Spanish, but that is, that's like a part of this image that I have. And like, we're all happy and we're smiling. So... It's a beautiful image. Now that's going to be out there. And what if it doesn't happen, Tyler? (laughs) I think, you know, what happens will be beautiful because it's you. And I think that, you know, I'm really grateful that you have taken this time out and created this space with me specifically on the show because this is literally the point is expanding the definition of what family means because it does mean something different to everybody, yet the emotion um, is very similar, the the raw human emotion of it. So um, thank you. Oh, thank you. This was great. How much do I owe you for this session? <laughs> <laughs> that is so funny. As I listened to Shireen talking about her IVF journey, it occurred to me that we just don't know what's going on with people, especially in the days of pandemic isolation. And when someone like Shireen shares this with such honesty, it's a real gift. I was also struck by Shireen's stories of her father and how moved she is when speaking of him. When our elders are near the end of their lives, it starts to sharpen our focus on the history and traditions they linked us to. I love that she's digging in and making those commitments to learn languages, fill her home with food, and have the necessary but uncomfortable conversations she needs to have with her loved ones. Shireen's story for me is really universal. We grow by moving through things that make us uncomfortable and connect as much as possible with the people who matter to us. And even if you didn't grow up in a mixed identity household, I know there's something about your background that you don't yet know. Judging from all the 23andMe and Ancestry.com ads, I'm guessing more of you have the details of your upbringing than ever before. So dig in. Then find a recipe or track down a relative you haven't talked to in forever. And learn something new about the people who came before you. 
Your homework for this week is to email me and share your family story. It's tyler at timfshow.com. If it's easier, feel free to DM us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, at timfshow in each spot. We want to know who's out there. And if you're saying, gee, I have a story to tell, I especially want you to send me a note. Go ahead. Pause this. Do it now. On next week's episode, we talk to someone about how to stay afloat during these tumultuous times, especially as it comes to engaging with difficult family members. It's the legendary meditation teacher, Sharon Salzberg. We get to know our motives more the more mindful we are. Like, why don't you just ask yourself, what do I want to see more than anything to come out of this conversation? Do I want to be seen as right? Do I want a resolution? Do I want to just convey my interest? Do I want to grind them into dust, you know? Thanks for listening to This Is My Family. You can find Shireen on Twitter and Instagram at Radio Mirage. That's M-I-R-A-G-E. She hosts NPR's Code Switch, which you can and should find wherever you get your podcasts. And again, you can find this show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at T-I-M-F Show. Our website is timfshow.com. This show is a production of thestoryproducer.com, and it's produced by me, Trisha Bobita, and Jackie Ball. It's edited and mixed by Adam Yaffe. Our music is by Andrew Edwards. Our community manager is Annika Exum. And last, but certainly not least, our art director is my handsome husband, Ziwu Zhou. If you're digging the show, I'd love for you to write us a thoughtful review and shoot us those five stars on Apple Podcasts. Be sure to hit subscribe or follow on your favorite podcast app. If you're on Spotify, don't forget to hit follow and also be sure to switch on notifications to get informed of new episodes as soon as they come out. Thanks for listening. I'm Tyler Green. And until next time, stay beautiful and messy. Is the podcast all done, Sam?